4. I hope that you will uh, pull out your Bibles and look with me at the passage. Uh, don't take my word for it. Let's make sure we see it there in the, in the pages of Scripture. Uh, ultimately, it's the Word of God that matters. And, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to uh, use one of those from uh, the seats in front of you. Uh, again, we're looking at Romans chapter 4 as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this letter. Uh, if you do use one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you, you'll find our passage this morning on page 941. 941. Let's begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 8. Uh, verses 1 through 8, beginning in Romans 4. Here's what we read. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let me just remind you of what's going on here in Romans 4. Back in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, Paul laid out the gospel. Paul laid out the good news of how unrighteous people can be counted right with God. His gospel was basically this. Jesus was a representative of all believers in His life and in His death. Jesus accomplished the perfect obedience that we failed to accomplish, and He bore the punishment that our sins deserved in our place. When a person turns to Jesus Christ and follows Him, that person's sins are forgiven because Jesus already took the punishments. Moreover, God looks at that person as though that person had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. When we believe on Jesus Christ, Christ's righteousness clothes us. It envelops us. Jesus' grades are on our report card. God looks at us and He sees the righteousness of His Son and He responds by blessing us and blessing us and blessing us forever. This is the Gospel. Sinners are made right with God when they trust Jesus Christ. No works required. Just faith. Now in Romans 4, we see him restate this in verse 5. Does everybody see that? Romans 4, verse 5, he restates the gospel. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's the point. When we believe on Jesus, we are justified, counted right in the sight of God. You see, friends, there are two ways that you can be right with God. The first is to live a perfect life. This means not only being completely sinless, but it means abounding perfectly in every good work and every good attitude. That option will not work for any of us. We have all already sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. So the other option that God has given to us is that we can stand before God with faith in His Son. And God accepts our faith in Jesus in place of a perfect life. Why does God accept our faith in Jesus instead of a perfect life? Because the one in whom we believe, Jesus, accomplished the perfect life that we failed to accomplish, and He accomplished it for us. We are His bride, and His righteousness is accrued to us. Now, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4 brought to our attention Abraham. Abraham, and especially Genesis 15, verse 6, are exhibit A in Paul's argument that the gospel he's preaching is the same gospel that has been saving people since the fall of man. Paul wants to make sure we understand this is not some new thing. It's not some new thing that he's preaching. It's not some new thing that we're preaching here at Mount Hermon. Way back in the days of Abraham, Abraham was saved, counted right before God by faith. Verses 1-4 through set Abraham before us as exhibit A. My gospel, Paul says, is the same gospel taught in the very law itself. Now in verses 6-8, through we have exhibit B. If Abraham in Genesis 15, 6 is exhibit A, David and Psalm 32 is exhibit B. These verses are all about blessedness. They're all about what it means to be a blessed man, a blessed woman. We we sometimes use these words, right? We'll say, we'll we'll bless you, right? Or sometimes you hear somebody say, "We'll, we'll bless your heart, right? What does it mean to be truly blessed? Well, the word used here is the word makarios, and it speaks of someone who is truly happy. Not superficially happy. Not goofy grin on the face happy. Not laughing at jokes that are funny happy. We're talking about a deep-seated, unshakable happiness that comes from being truly safe and secure in the arms of God To be blessed is to have the kind of happiness that can cause a person to be strong in the midst of sickness, in the midst of family troubles, in the midst of tragedy. Often, makarios is a kind of quiet happiness, but it's as solid as a rock, and it can't be taken away by anything in this world. This is the idea of blessedness, and this is the kind of blessedness that the gospel brings. We're not sharing a message that is meant to make people superficially happy or temporarily happy. We're sharing a message that will give them a happiness deeper than anything that can be found in all the different fountains of pleasure that this world offers. The gospel brings a sacred, ancient kind of happiness to people, the very happiness of God poured into their lives. So who are these blessed people, right? Verses 6 through 8, who are these blessed people? Blessed are those, right? Who is it that has this deep happiness? Surely these people who have such security and safety with God, they must be people whose lives are filled with good works. They must be the most morally impressive people on earth. These must be people who always tell the truth, never have lustful thoughts, who live always to serve others. Surely this kind of blessedness must only be for the the Mother Teresas of our world. 
or for those who have kept God's commandments so well that they stand tall above the rest of us. But is that right? Is that who these verses say this blessedness is given to? You might think that's how it works, but David says just the opposite. David says that the people who are blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, those whose sins have been covered. In other words, these blessed people that David describes in Psalm 32 and that Paul quotes here, these are not super saints. These are sinners. These are lawbreakers. What did Paul just say in verse 5? The person who is saved is not the one whose life is nothing but good works. No, it's not the one who works for his salvation. The one who is saved is the one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. The ungodly. Salvation is for the ungodly. Jesus said, I have come not to save the righteous, but to save sinners. And we should thank God because we're not righteous, but we are sinners. So we qualify. Here is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel was that God gives this great blessedness even to people like you and like me. People who have fallen in the dirt a hundred times, no, a thousand times. People who have lost their temper. People who have broken their promises. People who have hurt others. That is us. And according to these verses, the blessed person is the one to whom God forgives all of these sins. The gospel is for sinners and the gospel takes sinners' sins away. They are covered. They are not counted against us because they were counted against Christ at the cross instead. Now, wait a minute. Is there a problem with Exhibit B? Did Paul mess up trying to prove that his gospel is the same one taught in the Old Testament? Did Paul mess up by using this example? The verses Paul point us to prove that the ungodly can be saved, right? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. But his verses do not prove how these people were saved. In other words, do you see anywhere in verses 7 and 8, do you see anywhere where it tells how these people were saved? How these people became blessed? You see, Paul's whole argument is that his gospel of salvation by faith alone is an old gospel, the true gospel, the Old Testament and New Testament gospel. And yet the verses he quotes don't say anything about how we become blessed by faith alone. Couldn't couldn't maybe he be pulling these out of context? Maybe Psalm 32 is all about people who have earned their blessedness in some way. Maybe Exhibit B doesn't work. Well, of course, that's not true. And all you have to do is look at Psalm 32 as a whole to see that. You have to remember, Paul is still writing here mainly to Jewish Christians in this passage. He's writing to people who who he assumes know Psalm 32. It was not a a not well-known psalm in this day. It was a well-known psalm. And it's a psalm that's all about how sinners are forgiven by turning to God in faith. And so Exhibit B does work. Let me show it to you. Turn to Psalm 32. Let's look at the psalm that David is quoted, that Paul is quoting to prove his point. Look at Psalm 32. I want to show you two places here where it shows that it is people of faith who are blessed and have this salvation so that we can see that our gospel is the true gospel and not a false gospel. 
Psalm 32. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Hear that. How is it in this psalm that God forgave the iniquity of David? How was David's guilt before God removed? Was it because David was such a great leader? Was it because David was such a skilled musician? Was it because David was so brave in combat? How did David have his guilt removed? Answer, he looked to God in faith. He simply went to God and confessed his sins and said, forgive me. He came to God not with works. He came to God full of his sin. He acknowledged that sin and God took it away. This is the way of faith. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No works required. All that is required for salvation is just a humble looking to God. Let me show it to you again in verse 10. Verse 10, do you see verse 10? Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love, that's blessedness, steadfast love surrounds the one who, who what? God's steadfast love surrounds who? The one who trusts in the Lord. So you see, Paul's exhibit B is sound. Abraham and the story of Abraham and Abraham's salvation prove salvation is by faith alone. Now David and the story of Psalm 32 and how David found forgiveness prove salvation by faith alone. This is the gospel that saved Abraham. This is the gospel that saved David. This is the gospel that has saved men and women in this room. This is the gospel that we are to proclaim. Don't try and clean yourself up before you come to Christ. Don't try and and come to Him with works in your hands and say, at least I'm better than so-and-so, or at least I did this. Come to God with your sin and trust Him. Turn to Him in faith and He will take it away. Go back to Romans 4. What are some of the blessings that come with being forgiven? Why is the state of being forgiven by God such a blessed state to be in? And I'm I'm sure many of you in this room could give testimony of, of why being forgiven by God means so much to you. I want to mention just a few of the reasons why being forgiven by God is truly blessed. Here are some of the blessings of being forgiven. Number one, there is the blessing of no wrath. There is the blessing of no wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, there are a lot of people in our society who think that the wrath of God, the anger of God, it must be a small thing. When they think of God, they think of Him only as a God of love, and they think of Him as such a God of love that His wrath has no place in His character. But that's not true. Indeed, it's God's love that demands He be a God of wrath. 
These things are not inconsistent. They are perfectly in harmony with one another. Our God is a God of wrath because He is a God of love. He loves all that is good with an infinite love, and therefore He hates all that is evil with an infinite hatred. In our society, the whole notion of hell is ridiculous to many people. But for those who take God at His word, for those who believe that we can't pick and choose what Bible verses we want to believe, for those, the wrath of God is truly a frightening thing. We understand that God is just and right to condemn people to hell. More than that, we understand that God would be just and right to condemn me to hell. We understand that there is no unfairness with God. That our sins truly deserve an eternal hell. Understanding this doesn't make it any less terrifying. All the pictures of the Bible... All the pictures that the Bible gives us to help us understand this place called hell are meant to teach us it's a place we don't want to go. It's a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. It's a great pit into which Satan and his demons and all of depraved humanity will suffer without relief forever. If God gives you the grace to take these things seriously and to believe in His holy wrath, then when you are forgiven of your sins, that forgiveness is very, very sweet. The whole world is headed for damnation, and you, by God's mercy, have been plucked from the fire. That ought to bring some happiness to you, and some humility, and some gratitude. So there's the blessing of no wrath. Second, there is the blessing of no debt. Let me explain. The blessing of no debt. The glorious thing about God's forgiveness is that it comes to us freely. God does not forgive us of our sins and then say, now here's what you're going to do or I'm going to take this forgiveness away. Rather, forgiveness is a free gift. There's, there's no purgatory through which we must earn His mercy. We do not go to church or do Christian things in order to merit God's grace. We serve God and we obey God because we love Him, because we trust that He knows what is best for us. We can't help but love and serve and trust a God who's who's been so good to us. But God has given us His forgiveness with no debt included. He does not say, now pay me back for my forgiveness of you, as if we ever could. He simply calls us to turn to Jesus in faith and to receive it, to receive forgiveness. Third, there is the blessing of no separation. The blessing of no separation. See, here's really the goal of it all. Here is the best, I think, of all of the blessings that we receive when we trust Jesus and our sins are forgiven. Namely, before our sins separated us from God, take the sins away, and we are no longer separated from God. We are His. We could never be with God forever as His children as long as we are sinful. God is too holy to look upon iniquity. God is too good and we are too wicked for us to dwell together in harmony with Him. But now, by the taking away of our sins, we have been brought near to God. We are now able to have a real and vital relationship with God. We can call Him our Father. And we can worship Him. And we can receive His promises as our own. We can take our needs to Him in prayer. The greatest news of the gospel 
is not simply that we don't go to hell, though that's great news. And the greatest news of the gospel isn't just that we don't have to pay God back, though that's great news because we never could. But the greatest news of the gospel is that we now get to have God. That's what heaven is. It's being with God forever. And if you've tasted anything of the goodness of God, that should thrill your soul. The great goal of salvation is that we who are separated from God are no longer separated from Him, but we have Him. He is our God and we are His people and we love it to be so. Amen? One more blessing I'll mention of being forgiven is the blessing of no worries. Let me explain. No worries. Here's what I mean. When our sins are forgiven, we understand what God had to do in order for our sins to be forgiven. You see, our forgiveness comes to us freely, but it also came with a cost, the cost of God's Son. God poured out His righteous wrath upon His beloved Son in order that we could be forgiven. Yet if God was willing to give up His Son in order that our sins could be forgiven, is there any other need in your life that God is going to say, that's going to cost me too much, I won't meet that one. Has God not proven at the cross how far He is willing to go to accomplish His purpose of saving you, making you holy, making you eternally happy, and having you with Him forever? Has He not proven how far He will go? Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for for us all, How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God was willing to sacrifice Jesus for you in order to bring about the forgiveness of your sins, is there any other need that your soul may encounter as you head towards heaven to which God will say, nope, that's more than I'm willing to give? Absolutely not. If He was willing to give His Son for you, you know He is truly, eternally committed to your welfare and no good and necessary thing that your soul needs will be kept from you. But Through Christ, it will be given to you. Thus, when we have our sins forgiven, it ought to teach us not to worry. That the God who took care of this big problem, He's going to take care of the little ones too. He's going to take care of every one of them. And He's going to bring you to a place where there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain, and no more death. So we should learn from the Gospel not to be anxious, not to worry. A huge part of the Christian life is learning to believe these things and learning to rest in them. If we truly believe what I've just said, then worry and anxiety should increasingly disappear from the life of of believers. Now, if this is who we are as Christians, a people who are blessed because our sins have been forgiven, how should that affect the way we live? How should that affect the way we live if we are forgiven people? Obviously, we should live with gratitude. Obviously, we should live with humility, right? God is eternally committed to my welfare. Why? Because I'm so good? No. 
At the end, when I look around at thousands of people who are on a path to hell, and yet I have God's eternal commitment to bring me to heaven safely, all I can do is fall in the dust and say, why me, God? Thank you for saving me. There was nothing in me. The Bible's clear about that, isn't it? There's nothing good in us that made God look at us and say, "Mm, I prefer that one. If our sins have been forgiven, it ought to humble us. So we ought to live with gratitude and we ought to live with humility. We ought to live in joy, the joy of knowing that our sins are not going to be held against us. But there's another implication and it's the one that I think I want to focus on for the rest of our time. Namely, that forgiven people will forgive others. Forgiven people will forgive others. This should be true in us. It's hard to emphasize how important forgiveness is in the Christian life. In fact, Jesus talked about forgiveness in stronger words than anyone. Jesus said, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Don't water that down. Don't try and find ways to take the punch out of those verses. It's absolutely true. People that do not forgive others will find on the last day that they are not forgiven. If you are not forgiving people, you are not forgiven by God. It's the meaning of Jesus' words. Forgiveness is necessary in order for us to have a right relationship with God, namely His forgiveness of us. But if He has forgiven us, we will forgive others. Just as God must forgive us if we're to have a right relationship with Him, in every other relationship you have, there must be forgiveness or the relationship will not last. Whether it's a marriage, a relationship between family members, relationships in our church family, relationships in the workplace, nothing will ruin a relationship and bring it to its end quicker than unforgiveness. Think about this with me for a moment. In our relationship with God... There is a sense in which we have already been forgiven by our sin, for our sins. The moment we believed on Jesus, our sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. Did you know that? Your future sins are forgiven, Christian. And yet, there is still a sense in which we need to go and ask for forgiveness every day. When we believed on Jesus, that very moment, all of our sins in the future were paid for and removed as far away from us as the East is from the West, and yet God still calls us to regularly confess our sins to Him and come to Him for forgiveness. It's part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So even though our sins are forgiven, we are still to pray regularly for our sins to be forgiven. Why is that? Have you ever ever dealt with this question? Why, if I'm forgiven, am I supposed to keep coming to God and asking for forgiveness? Why does the Bible teach that? When we first come to Jesus, He promises us that He will always love us and never forsake us. When we first come to Jesus, we, we learn that He will never allow any sin to separate us from Him, that He will forgive us. We are His forever. But then, not long after we become a Christian... We sin again. We sin against this Savior we've come to love. Sure, He's promised that He'll forgive us. 
But it's when we actually go to Him and confess our sin that we get the experience of that forgiveness. While we're still holding on to that sin, while we're still failing to confess it, our fellowship with Jesus is hindered. Our prayer life suffers. Our zeal to serve Him suffers. Our experience of inner peace and the assurance of our salvation, all of these things suffer. It is only when we actually go to Jesus in time and space, in prayer, confess our sin, taking Him at His word that we are forgiven, it is only then that we have a renewed experiential fellowship with Christ. It isn't that He ever ceased being our Savior. Even while we were sinning, He was our Savior. It isn't that the covenant of salvation suddenly fell apart when you sinned and now you have to be saved all over again. No, no, no. But fellowship with Jesus can be hindered even while the covenant holds fast. Strong fellowship without forgiveness won't work. Well, this is how it is in a marriage. When a husband sins against his wife, See, the husband loses his temper and speaks harshly to his wife. He doesn't suddenly cease to be her husband. They made a covenant to love each other for better or for worse, and the covenant holds. But that doesn't mean there's not still some friction. That doesn't mean that the wife isn't upset. The husband still needs to acknowledge what he has done and offer a sincere and humble apology and be forgiven by his wife. And until forgiveness comes, the experience of peace and joy in that relationship is going to be hindered. Do you see the comparison? In our relationship with God, yes, I am saved and I belong to Him. And even when I sin, that relationship still exists. But I don't get to experience the joy of that relationship as long as I'm still in that sin. I need to go and be forgiven. This is how it should be in all our relationships. We should be quick to go to others when we have sinned and to seek their forgiveness. And we should be quick to forgive those who have sinned against us. And so I would ask, Christian, you who have been forgiven by God, is there anyone in your life that you're failing to forgive? Though God has forgiven you of a debt greater than you can imagine, are you still refusing to forgive someone else for what they've done to you? What's more, our forgiveness of others should resemble the forgiveness that God has shown to us. How often have we claimed to, for, to forgive someone for something, but then later we bring it back and hold it over their head? Aren't you glad that the Scriptures say that God takes our sins so far away from us, it's as if He casts them into the depths of the sea? It's as if your sins have been taken off of your account and buried into the very deepest parts of the Atlantic Ocean, trapped where they can never reach you or harm you. When people sin against you and you forgive them, is that how you forgive them? In your heart and mind, do you take their sins and throw them away from you as as the east is from the west? Or do you just stick their sins in your pocket and later when you get angry again, you pull them back out and hover them over their head? This is not biblical forgiveness. You say, Justin, what if I forgive this person, but then he or she does the same thing again? Friends, let me be blunt. When it comes to those who are closest to us, Most of the time when we are forgiving people for sins, we are forgiving them for sins they will commit again. (laughs) That's life with sinners. How many times have you committed the same sin against Christ? 
How many times have you had to go to Jesus and ask forgiveness for the umpteenth time for something you've done? How many times has He forgiven you for being impatient and yet you fall into impatience again? How many times has He forgiven you for speaking foolishly, knowing full well He's going to forgive you for speaking foolishly again tomorrow? Aren't you glad that Jesus' forgiveness is far-reaching and that He forgives repeat offenders? Didn't Jesus teach us to forgive one another not just seven or 77, but 70 times seven? In other words, there should be no end of our forgiveness towards one another. To paraphrase Thomas Manton, let others grow tired of sinning before we grow tired of forgiving. What does forgiveness look like? It looks like God's forgiveness of us. It causes the person who has sinned against you to know that your relationship is safe and secure. That your love has not been lost. What they've done to you has not taken your love away. You continue to love them. You will be there for that person. You are for that person and not against that person. Is this the kind of forgiveness that you show to those in your life? Do they know that your love for them has not decreased because of their sins? Do they know that you are no less committed to them than in days past? And is this the truth? Ken Sandy says that every time we say the words, I forgive you, we ought to be implicitly making these four promises. When we say, I forgive you, we should mean, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident without your approval. And I will not let this incident stand between us and hinder our relationship. This is biblical forgiveness. This is forgiveness the way that God forgives us. Folks, I'm going to be honest. In a church family, if we are to be healthy, forgiveness must be flowing everywhere. We are a church of sinners. And though Jesus is in the process of making us holy and removing sin from our lives, as long as we are on this earth, we are going to be prone to sin against one another. We will let each other down. We will say things that later we regret ever having said. We will forget to call someone. We will forget to fulfill some obligation. We will be negligent concerning the needs of a brother or sister. When we sin like this, we ought to be ashamed of the sin. I'm not trying to make the sin sound like something small. We ought to be ashamed of it. We ought to be quick to repent of it. And we ought to do all that we can to make sure that we don't repeat the sin. But when we're sinned against, we need to offer forgiveness quickly and freely eagerly and with lots of love. Where people acknowledge their sins quickly and where forgiveness is flowing freely, relationships will be strong and full of joy and God will be glorified. Our relationships will be a picture of the gospel. Where can we find the strength to forgive others as we ought? Remember men like Stephen, who as he was being stoned to death, I don't even want to imagine what it feels like to be stoned to death. Stephen is experiencing the pain of being stoned to death. And as he is being stoned to death, he cries out towards God, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. That's an example of forgiveness. It's amazing. Of course, he learned it from Jesus. 
Jesus being nailed to the cross, being mocked and blasphemed, cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You claim to be a follower of Jesus. Will you follow Jesus in this? He was perfect and deserved none of the suffering He received. What He endured was far worse than any suffering you've endured. He is the Creator of the world, crucified by His own creation. And in the midst of humiliation and agony, beyond anything you can imagine, He was willing to forgive His attackers. Is your situation worse than that? Consider how great the forgiveness of Christ towards you has been. That your sin was against the Holy One, the One worthy of nothing but love and obedience, and yet He forgave you. Are you too great to forgive others? Remember your profession of faith. Remember that as a Christian, you wear Christ's name. You are a follower of Christ. If you are unwilling to forgive, how will that affect the way others think about your Lord? What does it say about the the God you claim to represent? Your failure to forgive others is not just a personal matter. It affects your witness. It affects the glory of God. Also remember that every time we forgive someone, we are imitating our God, and it ought to be a privilege, a happy thing to imitate our God. Christ died so that we could become a forgiving people. It brings joy to our Savior when we forgive others. If it brings joy to Jesus when we forgive, if He was willing to go to such great lengths, even giving up His life to make us a forgiving people, shouldn't we find joy in forgiving others? Justin, I want to forgive. I've told this person that I forgive him or her, but all the pain keeps coming back. And it seems as if I find myself being angry over and over again. Justin, time after time, I I offer forgiveness with my words, but my heart just doesn't seem to want to let go. Could that be you? Could that be you? In your attitudes, your behavior towards others, you're expressing forgiveness, but deep in your heart, there's still bitterness. Listen carefully. Pray. Humble yourself and ask for God's help. Pray earnestly, pray persistently, pray consistently. God, take this bitterness away from me. God's heart is drawn towards those who want to do the right thing. Ask, seek, knock. He will hear you. Embrace all that the Bible says about you as a Christian. When we think about our status before God as one of His children, when we think of the glorious future that awaits us, Even the smallest, even the biggest hurts of this life seem small. When your heart tries to take the sins that have been committed against you and try and make them seem so huge and try and make them seem too great to forgive, remember that in light of eternity, that thing that was done to you will seem very, very small. And remember the story of Joseph. Right? What you meant as evil against me, God meant for good. There will be a day when you will thank God that that sin was committed against you. You may not see how that could possibly be true now. (laughs) Right now you think, I could never thank God that that was done to me. But there will come a day when you will be able to look back and say, God, thank you. I know what you are doing now. Thank you for having that sin committed against me in my life. 
Be careful not to dwell on the wrongs done to you. Instead, dwell dwell where Paul dwells, on the forgiveness of our own sins. Don't dwell on the sins of others. Dwell on the fact that you have been forgiven. Live as a forgiven person. Let me close this way. The key to forgiving others is experiencing the forgiveness of Christ yourself. Trusting in Jesus every day. Living in fresh forgiveness every day as you confess your sins to Him and and take hold of His promises of forgiveness every day. This will help you more than anything in having a heart that forgives others. Could it be that there are still any here this morning who are still separated from God by their sins? You know that God has called you to live a certain way. You've been living your own way. You've done some things you know are wrong. Maybe you've done some things that weigh on your conscience. Friends, will you now turn to Jesus and receive His forgiveness? Will you turn to Christ? Will you call on Him to save you? Will you follow Him? Will you trust Him enough to actually do what He says? To to go to the Bible and say, Jesus, I'm resting in You for my forgiveness. Now, Now help me beat these sins. Teach me how to live. Let me urge all of us again to go to Christ, to receive His forgiveness each and every day. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There is a deep happiness in living in the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I would ask all of us now simply to consider what we've heard and to go to God in prayer. Ask Him what might need to